Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 17th of August. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Annika Smethurst. Hi, Tom. And in today's briefing, we've got Treasurer Josh Frydenberg joining us. Steering the economic ship, it's my responsibility to not only oversee the good times, but also the more challenging times, which is what we're in right now. We sure are. Lots to ask him about. We ask him why he's been so critical of Victoria and not so much New South Wales in terms of their outbreaks. Plus, what he thinks about the WA Premier's call, Mark McGowan, to keep locking down his state even after they vaccinate 80% of the population. There is a health and an economic imperative as we get to 70% and 80% vaccination. We can start to open up from there. Yes, short, sharp lockdowns may be required right now, but once we get to that 70% number, we can start to ease those restrictions. That's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, in just a moment on The Briefing. First, today's headlines. There's been deadly chaos on the tarmac at Kabul Airport in Afghanistan as residents try to flee now that the Taliban has overrun the city. Yeah, the footage is shocking. You'll see it anywhere you go online today. Uh, Thousands of Afghan people running up to and hanging on to an American plane as it takes off from the airport. It was chaos. They were confused and they were completely in a a state of mind that was... uh, Uh, a a very, very obvious confusion and very obvious fear. It will take a few days, at least a few days, for things to normalise. That's the Mayor of Kabul, Dawood Sultanzoy, speaking to the BBC there. It's believed a total of seven people died at the US-controlled airport. So three people uh, died falling off the plane after it got off the ground. Two people were shot by US officials amid the chaos and people were injured in a stampede and then flights at the airport were suspended. Yesterday, the Australian government's National Security Committee approved a mission to send more than 250 Australian military personnel back into Afghanistan and other Middle Eastern countries to try and bring home dual Australian Afghan nationals, journalists and some of Kabul's former embassy staff. Yeah, so they might face a a very challenging situation there as they try and land at the same airport. At a meeting at the UN Security Council overnight, Secretary-General Antonio Guterres called on Afghanistan's new leaders to allow order to return to the country. All of us have seen the images in real time. Chaos, unrest, uncertainty and fear. At this grave hour, I urge all parties, especially the Taliban, to exercise utmost restraint to protect lives and to ensure that humanitarian needs can be met. The Taliban regained control in Afghanistan after taking the capital yesterday. That comes 20 years after Western nations first went into the country following the 9-11 attacks. And tough new restrictions, including a nighttime curfew, have come into force in Melbourne after authorities slams residents who were breaching restrictions. It's selfish. They are shitty choices and they will keep us all locked down for longer than we should be. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews speaking there. The Premier's outburst came as police confirmed they were investigating a video showing almost 70 people attending an engagement party on the weekend without masks. So starting last night, Annika, you Melburnians will be now under a 9pm to 5am curfew and all playgrounds have been closed too. Yeah, you also need a government-issued permit to go to work, even if you're an essential worker. Now, of course, that lockdown was expected to end on Thursday. It's been pushed back by two weeks 
And that comes after there was only 22 new cases announced in Melbourne yesterday. Half of those were in isolation for their entire infectious period. So, Annika, you wrote a piece in The Age. It'll be in the paper today and essentially argued that this was a bridge too far, that people wanted to be compliant, but this is a bridge too far. And um, There was a, a strong line, compliance is finite. Yeah, look, it's interesting. A lot of people are very angry about rule breakers, but I try and make a difference between rule breakers and benders. Go after those people, certainly, that were having an engagement party. But a lot of people were just enjoying a little bit of sun on the weekend, sitting outside. There's not a huge record of this virus being able to spread outside. So I start to think that some of those more harsh measures, um, you're only allowed to leave the house with one other person now that you live with, not in a group, really maybe counter to this and that there could be actually a backlash. And that's what the UN has advised, that when we all get a little bit fatigued from these measures, that going harder doesn't necessarily work. And I guess the context is the timing as well. We're in a very different sort of point in this overall pandemic than we were when Melburnians very obediently locked down last year. Yeah, I think some of the fatigue is uh, a fewfold here. And one of the reasons is we've got a vaccine now. So while the rollout has been sluggish uh, to be diplomatic, it does give people some hope that those most vulnerable people in the community have some protection, that there is an end in sight. So I think that's one of the reasons people are a little bit fatigued by this. And also the promise that we could ever get to zero. I think people are starting to realise that perhaps that's not going to be the case. Well, Dan Andrews keeps warning Victorians about what's happening in New South Wales, where uh, we recorded our deadliest day since the pandemic began. And a growing number of cases in regional areas, the state announced seven deaths and 478 new cases yesterday, with 35 of the new infections uncovered in western New South Wales. Those cases bring the Dubbo cluster to 95 And authorities are increasingly concerned that the virus is infiltrating a large Indigenous community there, where houses are more packed and families travel between towns like Walgett and Burke further to the west. New South Wales leaders have continued to blame the outbreak on a small number of people breaking the rules. And yesterday marked the first day of Operation Stay at Home. It's a crackdown involving 18,000 police and 600 troops in Sydney. I was out on my bike yesterday within my new 5k radius and I certainly noticed an increased police presence. And tennis legend Roger Federer has confirmed he'll be off the court for months, pulling out of the US Open to undergo knee surgery. I want to give myself um, a glimmer of hope also to return to the tour in some shape or form. I am realistic, don't get me wrong, I know how difficult it is at this age. It'll be the third time the 40-year-old has had surgery on his right knee. It comes after he pulled out of Tokyo due to a niggling injury. So, oh, I don't like the sound of that, Annika. Knee surgery can be hard to recover from. It really depends what he's getting, though. I unfortunately have a bit of experience with knee surgery. If it's a full reconstruction, you're in massive trouble, probably never coming back. But they do these little clean-outs. Sometimes people can recover from really quickly, but you never know. Yeah, he's got a bit of experience recovering from them, I guess, given how many times this knee has given him a bit of grief. Other tennis stars, though, are speculating that it could end his 23-year career. Hasn't been a bad one, though, with 20 Grand Slam titles. What an absolute legend. All right, in just a moment, Josh Frydenberg.
Josh Frydenberg, thank you for joining us. Now, last year, Australia's economy was plunged into its first recession in nearly 30 years. We thought we were over the worst of it. Are we looking like we might go into another recession this year? Well, it's certainly too early to make that call. What we do know is that the September quarter is likely to be negative because of the impact of the lockdowns, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. And so we'll see a contraction of the economy in September. But the economy has shown remarkable resilience in the sense that it bounced back from the broader lockdowns last year. And even right now, consumer confidence, consumption by households is still about 30% higher than it was back in March and April last year. And we do know that our health workers and are doing everything possible to try to get on top of these outbreaks and we all hope that they're successful. We do know a lot of the economic pain though has hit younger workers in many ways, not just in terms of unemployment, but a lot of them are in um, those people at uni working in industries that are more likely to close down quickly. There's a lot of issues facing the under 30s. So what's your government doing to help that cohort through this and not just whilst we're in it but as we emerge from the pandemic what support will be there for this group on the other side? We are certainly right that the pandemic hit those industries where young people were heavily represented for example hospitality, tourism, retail, recreation, creative arts and the like but when the economy bounced back we saw the overall unemployment rate come down to point. 9% in June, which was the lowest in more than a decade. But importantly, the youth unemployment rate was down to its lowest level in 12 years. Now, it's just above 10% in June, so it's still way too high. But what we did see after those lockdowns last year was a bit of a rebound in the labour market, and that was including for young people. What we're doing is investing in programs like Job Trainer, uh, which are designed to provide education and courses technical courses to help people get into work. Uh, We have the uh, wage subsidy for apprentices, which has been very successful. So there are programs that we're doing on the skills side. We're obviously investing in our universities, including more places, including more money into research. And programs like Home Builder, which are designed to get more people into the housing market, are creating a lot of jobs across the construction industry. and, And that's also important for young people too. And Josh Frydenberg, you recently said that you accept responsibility for the slow rollout in the vaccine. If we do go into recession, will you accept responsibility for that as well, given that vaccination rates could have prevented some of these severe lockdowns? Well, Tom, let's put the record on the table. The first thing is to say our economy today is bigger than it was going into the pandemic. We've got more people in work today than going into the pandemic. No other advanced economy has seen that occur. Mm-hmm. You're right, we've gone into lockdowns in, in some of our largest states, but to say that they would have been avoided by high rates of vaccination disregards the experience that we've seen in other countries across the world. Now, of course, we would have liked that we didn't have the experience as we did with AstraZeneca, uh, where it was confined for a period of time to certain age cohorts and, and that damaged the brand and damaged the speed of the rollout. But we have now seen more than 15 million doses distributed. We have now seen one in 
four Australians receive a double dose and hopefully by the end of this week, one in two eligible Australians would have received at least a first dose. So we're gaining pace sure. in the vaccination program, but obviously uh, steering the economic ship, you know, it's my responsibility to not only oversee the good times, but also the more challenging times, which is what we're in right now. But it looks like we might end up about four months behind the UK. They hit Freedom Day in, in July with a 70% vaccination rate. Could we have been there too? And therefore, if we do feel this strong economic pain in this second dip of a potential double dip recession, do you take responsibility for not just the AstraZeneca situation, but also not ordering more Pfizer earlier? Well, with respect to Pfizer, the good news is we've got an extra million coming from Poland. But if you want to make comparisons with the United Kingdom, Tom, look at the fact that 130,000 deaths have occurred over there and the fact that in Australia it's been less than 1,000 uh, to date and every death is tragic, um, but they're still getting you know, up to 30,000 cases a day and scores of deaths. So we have avoided the fate of other nations like the United Kingdom, like the United States on the health front with the large loss of life, but equally on the economic front we bounced back a lot stronger than they did after the initial phase of the crisis. What we're doing now is trying to get as much targeted support to as many people in need as possible. And that has required us to roll out the COVID disaster payments, which are at $750 and $450 a week. And we've also partnered with the states to provide business support, focusing on small and medium-sized businesses. And that can be grants of varying between $2,800 to up to $20,000 for large hospitality venues. With respect to the arts sector, we've provided extra emergency support to them as well. So there's a lot of things that we're doing across the economy, Tom, which are designed to help cushion what is a pretty hard blow for many families and businesses as a result of these lockdowns. Well, speaking of the arts, will you do more for live music? It's been completely smashed. You had the creative economy package last year. That was last June of 250 million. Then you put an extra 125 in the Rise touring program. But that was in March and it's gotten so much worse since then with the Delta wave. Will there be more targeted support for the live music sector? Well, we just announced $35 million in the last week or so. Uh, and obviously we continue to work with the state and territory governments because also they've got responsibilities in these areas. But we have put a significant amount of money into that sector. And of course, people in those sectors are also eligible for the small business payments as well as eligible for the income support. Treasurer, last year we all hoped 2020 was the worst year and we were over most of it. It's turning out that we're seeing big waves this year while the whole country is not in lockdown. At one stage recently, the whole East Coast was. Last year at the height of it, you were pretty critical of Dan Andrews. You are a Victorian. You actually said at the time that it was the biggest policy failure by a state government. I wanted to know what specifically were you talking about in terms of that failure and whether you still stand by that given what's going on in New South Wales. Well, if you look at the scale, unfortunately, what happened in Victoria, tragically, more than 800 people lost their lives, Annika. That was an absolute tragedy. And there was a very clear quarantine failure. And then they had a inquiry, which found that nobody uh, was responsible, quite bizarrely. Of course, the health minister resigned. Uh, the chief of the premier's department resigned. But it was a very difficult time. And if you compare the experience of Victorians to other states, yes, it's a challenging time for people in New South Wales, but in Victoria, 
they've been in lockdown for more than 200 days and it's the sixth lockdown. So we have got behind Victoria every possible way with our economic support. We offered uh, ADF support as well and, and other medical emergency support. But in just the last few weeks, we've announced successive packages with the Victorian government in partnership with them of over $1 billion. So we're providing all the economic and health support as possible to the people of Victoria. And as a proud Victorian and with a family that's gone through lockdown, no doubt as you, Annika, and many other people listening today, it's been a very challenging time. But the country's got to come together and it's got to get through this together. And the good news is that the vaccination rollout is gaining momentum. I guess part of coming together is about, you know, dealing with the different states and the way they're working with this. And and you've been accused of going too hard on Victoria and going soft on New South Wales, which people say undermines the national collective spirit. And you've also got a situation in Western Australia where Mark McGowan said over the weekend that even with 80% vaccination, he'd still put his state into lockdown. What do you think of that strategy? Well, the Prime Minister was asked about that and he Uh, made it very clear that that was not the agreement through National Cabinet, so we just have to wait and see. But the Doherty Institute, together with an analysis by the Commonwealth Treasury, does show that there is a health and an economic imperative as we get to 70% and 80% vaccination. and We can start to open up from there. Yes, short, sharp lockdowns may be required right now, but once we get to that 70% number, we can start to ease those restrictions. There's an agreement through National Cabinet. They're the targets that they're going for. And, you know, hopefully all states can vaccinate as many people as possible. All right, Josh Frydenberg, thank you so much for your time here on The Briefing. Great to be with you, Tom and Annika. Much appreciate That was your treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, here on The Briefing. Annika, he's very careful, isn't he? I, I think one of the strongest things he said there was not backing the stance of Mark McGowan locking down after 80% vaccinations. But then it's interesting to think, on the other hand, they've got Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales, who, who was talking about easing restrictions after 50% vaccination. So it shows the spectrum of reactions from the states they're having to contend with. Mm, And people will see this through political lenses and say that they're perhaps not as strong on some of the Liberal states, but I think they were pretty upset with some of the decisions Gladys Berejiklian has taken, including, you know, plans to maybe ease restrictions. And it does show the limits of how much the federal government can actually control the states at the moment. I guess what this pandemic has shown is the power of the state premiers, you know, people whose names we never once knew are now on the TV every day and making really big decisions and the federal government have to go along for the ride. They've obviously made this national cabinet process so they can all be on the same page. They meet every second Friday, they come to a decision and then you have premiers go rogue like we've seen. So Mm. it's a frustration for the federal government and they've just got to work within the parameters that they have. Yeah, but I think the reason people criticise him for going too hard on Victoria is that if they are seen to show favourites amongst the states and, you know, potentially it's along political lines, potentially not, but if they are seen to play favourites, then it can undermine that sense of national Mm. unity. I think there's definitely something in that. And we've seen states line up differently, you know, against different lines, um, depending on uh, how they feel about closures or how they feel about vaccines or how they feel about uh, opening up um, during this pandemic. And the federal government's always going to be held to account to make sure there is that consistency. And I think Josh Rydenberg sort of nailed why he was probably more passionate about Victoria there. And that's because 
he is a Victorian. You know, we constantly get told the Prime Minister is, you know, a New South Welshman um, who governs for the rest of the country with New South Wales first. And I think that just shows the frustration Josh Frydenberg was feeling as a Victorian. And I think when it is happening in your own state, you do feel this a bit differently. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we check back in with the Australian stranded overseas. Listener.